Welcome to the 5-Minute Bible Study Podcast. This ain't your grandma's podcast. Alas, the 5-Minute Bible Study Podcast is back with your host, Aaron Betty. This episode is brought to you, as always, by 5MinuteBibleStudy.com. Today's resource, it doesn't actually come from the website, 5MinuteBibleStudy.com. I'm going to direct you guys to the Chapel Grove Church of Christ website. Maybe you're not familiar with it. Go to TNCGChurchOfChrist.org. That is kind of a long address, but go ahead and follow it anyway tncgchurchofchrist.org, and there you'll find a whole new slew of resources. On there, I maintain that website uh, with a web designer, but there's a lot of sermon content on there, so there's not a lot of sermon content on my Bible study resource website, but if you'll go over there and you were just interested in sermons, there is a lot on there. There's also quite a few little booklets that are in digital format, just play it around the website. You can find a few things. If you want to take a Bible study course, that's also available on there at the Chapel Grove Church Christ website. Into today's episode, we're going to have the usual lay of the land. We're going to have a Bible story. You know, I was uh, planning on doing Abraham sacrifices Isaac, and I was planning on doing it as retelling the story as if they were rednecks. And, uh, I might still do that. I'm I'm literally working off my heels as I do this episode, just playing by the seat of my pants, just however I feel. We might tell Abraham and Isaac as a redneck. We might tell it straight and true to the word. I'll let you know if I do make up some details, whatever one we take. But that's going to be a story coming up. Uh, I do have uh, the main dish, which is study tips on 1 John. Study tips on 1 John. So, I'll get more into that when we get there, but that's what we're going to be covering on the main dish today. And then finally, if you'd like to hear about the great fall of 2017, when I was preaching in Tennessee at the Tennessee Labor Day meeting, stick around for foot and mouth syndrome. That's the lay of the episode coming up to you here on the podcast. And that donkey got up not too far away from that angel of the Lord. Send me a man to fight with me. Let me tell you a story that will prove to you that I can defeat that giant. And he said, no, I can't do that. You're my master's wife. Okay, I finally made a decision. We're going to go with the redneck version of Abraham sacrifices Isaac. This is just kind of an experiment. So you guys tell me, uh, give me some feedback. Do you like this version or would you rather me just go back to telling the facts just as they are in the Bible. In this version, I'm going to test you. You go home, you actually read the story, and you decide for yourself uh, which details I substituted and which ones are really in the original story of Genesis chapter 22. Okay, so God told Abraham one day, he says, I want you to sacrifice your only son. And by the way, it it wasn't till he was 99 that Sarah got pregnant with Isaac. That, your only son, your only, some people say, one-of-a-kind son, because he did have Ishmael by Hagar already, of course, but this was the a one-of-a-kind son, and the only one by Sarah. But anyways, I want you to sacrifice him on an altar. This was a test by God to see if Abraham truly had ultimate faith in God. 
And so Abraham says, yes, Lord. He doesn't understand exactly why, but he goes ahead and he takes Isaac. This is where we're going to jump in with our little bit of shifting around of details. So they go on a camping trip, and, and Abraham tells Isaac, he says, son, uh, you want to go camping this weekend? And, of course, they went on their summer fishing trip every year, and so Isaac says, yes, sure, sure, Dad. And uh, he says, well, let's go to Walmart. So they go to Walmart first, and they get their uh, pork and beans and some Vienna sausages and some worms, you know, to go fishing and all that. And they do all that. Now, rednecks don't get starter logs, but for this story, we're going to need a starter log. And so they got one of those two. Pack it all up. They get in the beat-up Ford Ranger, and they get on their way to Mount Moriah. So they actually took some of their friends, went up to the base of this mountain, and from that point, Abraham says, now you guys stay here. Me and Isaac are going to go up this mountain. We'll be back. If we ain't back in three days, then start looking. But we should be back. We're going to go have some fine father-son bonding time. So they go up the mountain, and when they get up there, uh, Abraham tells Isaac, first off, he tells him, we're going to make a sacrifice before we go fishing. And back in that day, sacrifices were a thing, so Isaac doesn't think anything of it. He uh, he carries the starter log, big starter log, on his back, some kindling and some uh, gasoline. Of course, you can't start a fire without gasoline. So they go up here, and then they start to build an altar. But Isaac starts to realize, he's like, um, Dad, there ain't no animal like, where's the animal for the sacrifice? You said we're going to offer a sacrifice to God. Where is this animal, Dad? And they had never done this before on one of their summer fishing trips, of course. So the whole thing is, is a little bit odd, but nonetheless, Isaac's not asking questions until now. And Abraham's just like, uh, we'll figure it out, son. Uh, don't worry. You just keep uh, building that altar right there. Yeah. And uh, what he doesn't see is he doesn't see Abraham loading his 12-gauge <laughs> behind him. And so, you know, rednecks, they do a lot of dumb things all the time. And uh, so Isaac, you know, he's not thinking a lot about it whenever his dad tells him to crawl up on this altar with the starter log underneath him, and his dad ties his hands behind his back. All is fun and games until he pulls out this 12-gauge and points it at his, at his head. And two things are going on. Abraham's like, God, please say something. But God is not saying anything. And then Isaac's looking at, down the barrel of this 12-gauge, and he's like, ah! And Abraham's like, ah! And they're screaming at each other. And just before he lets down on that trigger, God stops him by an angel and says, Abraham, do not pull that trigger. This was a test, and you passed it. Now I know that you believe in me with all your heart. And they, they got Isaac off that altar. They went back down. Nobody was talking on the way home. Fast forward one year, Abraham asks Isaac, hey, you want to go on a camping trip again? And Isaac's like, no, nah, I'm good. That was the last summer camping trip they ever went on. Again, if you want to know the full details of the actual story, go to Genesis 22. Check that out. Good reading. This week's episode is brought to you by Mana Bars. Have you tried reading your Bible once a year and feel like you are still spiritually weak? Maybe you even go to church as often as every Easter, but still no spiritual growth. 
If this describes you, then you need mana bars. Mana bars are the latest and greatest. This power pack spiritual protein bar will give you a full day's worth of the fruits of the spirit in one bar. Don't listen to people that tell you Christianity is a discipline, that you need to read your Bible like daily manna, pray without ceasing, be at church whenever the doors are open, trust God in all things, and so on. Mana bars give you all the fruits of the Spirit without any of that annoying work. Just eat one bar daily, and you'll immediately start feeling more patient, meek, faithful, kind, joyful, having self-control, and more. Go to manabarsfakenews.com and get your first box of mana bars for free with the promo code LIES, that's L-I-E-S, and start your spiritual transformation right away. And the main dish has arrived. This week we are talking about study tips on 1 John. And the reason I'm talking about study tips on 1 John is because I think I advertised on my Instagram page recently that I am doing a reading challenge this year, and actually for the next three years, where I pick a book of the Bible. If they're small enough, I'll read that book of the Bible every single day of that month for 30 days, or however many days in the month there are. Uh, If it's a bigger book, I break those down into smaller parts to make them more digestible. Well, the first month in January, I read the book of 1 John, And I really didn't plan on making any type of formal notes about the book, but it just kind of happened. I started seeing things, and I wanted to write those things down so I didn't forget them, of course. Well, then I was thinking, this would be a great episode for the podcast. And every time that I finish one of these books, I'm sure I'll have written down some study tips or some things that I observed, and I'll share those with you guys in a podcast episode like this. Now, what this is not going to be, it's not going to be an overview of the book of 1 John. It's not your introduction to the book. So if you've not read 1 John, or maybe you just need to read an introduction to a book, or to to the book, then pick up Introduction to the New Testament by Norman Geisler, something like that, and read an introduction to be more familiar with it. Read the book. So this is a little bit more, um, I have some basic things here, and then I have some a little bit more advanced things and just whatever is to your liking, I think everybody can learn here. It doesn't matter where you're at in your learning process, but some of these things, like I said, uh, will be a little more advanced and might be for people that have studied the book or are a little bit more used to studying their Bible. We'll put it that way. There are seven things that I noted, seven study notes, study tips, that I think you can take note of and really learn by reading the book 30 days in a row, but here you know, I'm just telling you what they are. So let's just get into them. The first thing I notice is, as in most books of the Bible, there are key phrases. And by key phrases, I mean these phrases, they introduce major thoughts or they introduce new sections of thought within the book. They also emphasize the purpose of the book sometimes. So let's just get right into them. The first phrase that I notice in the book of First John is the book, or rather is the phrase, from the beginning. And you notice this right out of the gate in chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, that which was from the beginning, um, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon. He's talking about Jesus Christ in the flesh. The story of Jesus Christ in the flesh, the gospel, which starts with the beginning of the events of Jesus witnessing himself, uh, or I should say um, bringing himself to witness before the apostles' eyes and all those that would follow after him. Uh, that's a key phrase. You're going to read it again in chapter 2 and verse 7. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have heard or had from the beginning. 
And he'll repeat that again. Let's see here. Two, three, four, five times. I think I've counted here. Five times in the book of First John. That's repeated. So again, these phrases, obviously in chapter 1 and verse 1, it introduces the thought that the things discussed here have to do with the testimony to Jesus Christ, the fact that he did come in the flesh, and the things that that turned into the gospel. Um, but a lot of this book is about the uh, testimony to Jesus coming in the flesh, that he really did resurrect and all those things. Um, that's just where that key phrase brings attention to. Another phrase is, by this we know that we know, in chapter 2 and verse 3, by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. This phrase right here just kind of introduces key thoughts, important points, brings emphasis to those, and by repeating the phrase, again, emphasis is drawn to that point. He will say that again in chapter 3 and verse 16, by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. An important point there, a definition of love uh, emphasized by that phrase. He'll say the same thing in chapter 4 and verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And then again, at the end of verse 6, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. That's repeated, I'm looking at it again, around eight times. I'm not doing an exact count here off the top of my head. Around eight times that phrase comes up. So when you read the book, you will notice this coming up over and over, and that will bring attention to important power statements, I guess you might call it. Then there's the third phrase, little children, and this is more just an address, but again, it draws attention to what's about to be said. It happens several times from verses 12 through 14 of chapter 2, but here's the first occurrence in chapter 2 and verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you, so that. A side note, I love it when the text just says, here, I'm writing this book, so that, and that one says, so that you may not sin. Well, anyways, he uses a direct address several times, like I said, chapter 2, verse 12, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. He goes through that same phrase over and over for the next two verses, and then uh, just another point of reference, chapter 3 and verse 7, he says, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. So again, it just brings attention to what's about to be said and it connects uh, new trains of thought. And then finally, there is the I write to you so that statement, which we acknowledged that just a minute ago when talking about the little children statement. Well, he says it the first time in chapter 1 and verse 4, and these things we write to you so that your joy may be full. That's one of the purpose statements of the book. There are more than one, I should say, there is more than one purpose to the book of 1 John than just simply to, uh, you know, teach against false doctrines being perpetuated against the fleshly resurrection of Christ or the fleshly dwelling of Christ on the earth. Um, part of it is to make their joyful, to bring joy to the readers. Chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, I write to you so that you may not sin. Uh, chapter 5 and verse 13 is the last chapter and last verse, I should say, uh, not last verse, but the last chapter, he says, these things I write, I've written to you that you may believe in the name of the Son of God. So those are all purpose statements. These are all give reasons to why the book is written, the purpose of the book. Those are very helpful. And that's it. That's all the key phrases that I took note of. Again, I just feel like I would have noticed if there was more repetition having read the book for 30 straight days, but maybe I missed something. I would just put those 
forward to you when you're reading the book, look for those and see how prevalent that they pop up and what they're drawing attention to. Perhaps they will help increase your understanding of the book and all. Uh, the second point, the study tip that I'll give to you, is that from what I can observe from reading the book, there's really not a single concept that's introduced in the book. Maybe there is one, but I, I really couldn't see just on my cursory reading and my in-depth reading that there's not a concept in the book that doesn't come up again later in the book. For example, the subject of the Antichrist is introduced in chapter 2 and verse 18. John again returns to the subject of the Antichrist in chapter 4. So he brings it up in chapter 2, he returns to it again to make more comments in chapter 4. There's the theme of walking in the light. That takes up several verses in chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, essentially. And he talks about, well, let's just read a verse. He says in verse 6, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he's in the light, and so on. There's this theme of continuing to walk in the light of Jesus Christ or in the light of God. So it's introduced in chapter 1, and then in chapter 3, he talks about the idea of keeping on sinning and how those born of God, well, they do not sin. Chapter 3 and verse 9, whoever's been born of God does not sin. The ESV says uh, they do not keep on sinning. So there's the again the idea. He doesn't say there anything about light, but the idea is practicing righteousness. Now, he does say that. And when you understand that light is representative of righteousness in chapter 1, when he says to walk in righteousness, walk in light, then to practice righteousness, to keep on living righteous and not sinning, that's the same concept. So this is more of a concept repetition. In chapter 5, he's going to go on to say there is a sin leading to death. And there is a sin not leading to death. I do not tell you to pray about the sin leading to death. And when you put the whole book together and you go back and see, again, these concepts are repeated. So let me go back to the beginning of the book and find the related concept that helps me understand what is this sin leading to death. He's talking about unrepented sin, sin that you continue to live in and dwell in without repenting of it, without breaking it off. This is sin that leads to death. Don't pray about that because God's not going to forgive you a sin that you continue to live in and indulge in. So this concept is brought up and repeated over and over. There are other concepts that I'll just run through real quick just to complete the list. The witness to the testimony of Christ coming in the flesh, which we've referenced already, that's referred to in chapter 1, and it comes up frequently throughout the book, really. It's referred to at the very concluding part of the book. Uh, to form a book in. Those are just a few samples of the concepts that pop up. Others being keeping commandments is an important theme, knowing God, receiving the Spirit of God, loving your brother, loving God, Christ laying down his life, abiding in God, the Word of God, believing in the Son, and probably add more to that. That's just the list that I created. Uh, that's a pretty good little study right there. If you were to take these concepts and be looking for them throughout the book, and again, whenever one of those concepts, you arrive upon it, and a verse doesn't make sense to you in the book, then go back and look for the same concept talked about earlier on or, or after the fact, and usually it will help 
give commentary on the verse that you don't understand. It'll help enlighten you. So that's a good, very, very good study tip on reading First John in that respect. The third thing is that of what lots of scholars say about the book, what it's about. A lot of scholars, a lot of commentaries will speak about the book of First John as if they, well, as if the book is a defense against the philosophy known as Gnosticism. Now, I'm again, this is not an introduction to book. I'm not going to get go into all of what Gnosticism is about. First of all, I there's a, a lot of it that I have to go back and read myself. Um, nonetheless, one of the ideas is that it places the, the theory, the philosophy was placing doubt on um, the idea of the flesh itself was sinful. This is what I have learned and understood of the philosophy, if I'm understanding it correctly. And so if the flesh was sinful, then Christ could not have come in the flesh. He did not come in the flesh. And so there was this potential doubt being placed on the fleshly incarnation, I should say, and on the resurrection based off of this theory. Well, this was supposedly, and according to history, was a, a rising theory, a rising philosophy before even the first century. It was developing and it f- became fully developed after the first century. But anyways, there's a lot of commentators that believe that this philosophy in, in its root form was finding its way into the church and causing doubt about the flesh, the, the incarnation of Christ and the resurrection and all that. Well, maybe that's the case. Maybe that's the case. But one thing that I take away from reading the book is that there's nothing in the book that speaks to that directly. And while it may be a good theory that this is a defense against Gnostic principles being brought into the church, that's just a theory. That's all it is. It might be a good theory, but that's all it is. And and a lot of times you'll read commentaries and they'll speak of it so matter-of-factly that they just start talking about the fact that Gnosticism was in the the church that John was addressing or within the Christian community that John was addressing. And that's just... All it is is a theory. So read the book with that in mind and see for yourself. But that's just one of the things I took away. Sometimes we speak too confidently about things that are really just good theories, and I've done this as well. Uh, so I'm not claiming to be um, not guilty of this in the past. We, we come to a conclusion, we dwell on something for so long that we start to believe it true. We start to will it to be true. And then it seeps into our language, and we start, start talking about it as matter-of-factly when, again, the whole time it was just a, an idea, a theory, a thought that, that we convinced ourselves of to be more than what it was. Anyways, not any more about that. I just thought I would share that so that uh, if you ever give a sermon or you ever give a study or you are talking about First John with people, don't just state matter-of-factly, this is a defense by John against Gnosticism and so forth. We know that, blah, blah, blah. No, you really don't. And and then there's a lot about Gnosticism we don't understand, and maybe, and you probably don't, I don't want to say that about you, because I don't know who you are. A lot of people don't really know what Gnosticism is when they go about making those statements, when they give sermons about this book and all that. So don't talk about stuff you don't understand. Just, just leave, talk about the text. What does the text say? And just stick with that. Uh, the fourth thing that I took away from the book, and, and the next this point and the next point are really grammatical 
notes. And so this is, again, maybe for the more advanced Bible student. These really are not advanced points, but maybe the fact that we're talking about grammar at all is just too much for you. It's beyond basic principles. (laughs) And that's not a bad thing if that's where you're at, but eventually when studying the Bible, uh, you will have to face the music of biblical grammar. Now what we're talking about here is very, very basic. The fact is that in the book of 1 John, there's a lot of the use of the word we. Now, we is a first-person personal pronoun. So if I ever if I use that phrase, I'm talking about words like I, we, our. Those three words right there are used quite a bit in this book. So obviously, John is talking about himself and some group that identifies with him as we. One example being in chapter 1 and verse 1. I'll just read it with you to to show you what I'm talking about. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. So sometimes he uses this personal pronoun, we, and it's different from place to place who he's referring to. And you think I'm just making this up. Well, Just think about what we just read there. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. He's obviously talking about eyewitness testimony. And not everybody can say that, right? The people that he's talking to, he is testifying to them that he is an apostle who has heard Christ in the flesh, seen him with his eyes, looked upon him, his hands handled Christ after and before his resurrection. He is an eyewitness to this account. He's writing to people bearing testimony. However... He will use the personal pronoun we in verse 6 of the same chapter when he says, If we say that we have fellowship with him, that it's Christ, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now in that statement right there, there is nothing restrictive about that to restrict it to the apostles. In fact, the things he says here are instructive to Christians generally. Uh, If Christians say that they have fellowship with Christ, but they walk in darkness, then they lie and don't practice the truth. Now, that's true of apostles, but there's nothing restrictive there to just apostles. It would seem that the context would indicate he is just talking about people in general. Basically, practice what you preach. Walk in the light. Practice righteousness. Make that your lifestyle as opposed to being a Christian and making evil your lifestyle. Context is going to be your biggest help in distinguishing whenever he uses the we in reference to the apostles throughout the book, and whenever he uses the we when talking about himself identifying with other Christians. He goes back and forth, so it makes it a difficulty. When you get to verse John 4 and verse 6, here's a verse that it's just talking about the apostles, but people I've heard apply it to Christians or themselves And it's not. It's talking about the apostles who had authority from Christ by the Holy Spirit who were eyewitnesses of Christ's resurrection. 1 John 4, 6, we are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. I believe it goes on to say, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. We know the spirit of truth when we listen to the apostles who were with God, heard God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, and they wrote those things down. That's the we under consideration there. And proving that more, sometimes when, not Paul, sometimes when John is writing and he's, and he's, uh, he's addressing someone else, as opposed to the we being the apostles, he will make a statement of designation. Chapter four, verse four, for example, you, okay, second person pronoun, you are of God, little children, 
So he identifies that the you there is the little children, the audience that he's been writing to and called little children several times in the book. Then he goes on and says, we are of God. That contrasts with the you. We, the apostles, are of God. And then in verse 7, the next verse, he says, Beloved, let us love one another. And so there again, he designates the group with the title Beloved and says, Let us. And so now he again is identifying himself. Although he's an apostle, he's identifying himself with the Christian community and just saying, Christians, we need to love one another. And Again, this can be very difficult when you're reading the book and you just assume that every time that John uses the personal pronoun we, that he's referring to himself and all Christians, you can start applying apostolic traits and apostolic testimony and witness to Christians generally, which is obviously not the message of John and is not not appropriate. So that's just something to keep in mind. Context is your friend there. And if you think that context just isn't enough, uh, that's just too much reasoning placed in the hands of the individual, just understand context is a very powerful interpretive key, and sometimes it's it's all we do have, especially when talking about in, in Greek. In Greek, there's a lot of similarities between words and their functions in a sentence, and the only time you can know when a word is functioning in a certain way is from the context. And a lot of times, your Bible translations depend on that very tool right there, using context to determine the meaning of a word. A lot of times the scholars have to use nothing more than context. So there you go. There's your hand at being a scholar by taking this principle uh, when you read 1 John. Okay, number five. Tip number five. Take note of present tense verbs in the epistle. Okay, more grammar here. When we're talking about present tense verbs, we're talking about an action that is occurring in the moment, and that would include action that is continuing to occur. In the epistle of 1 John, it's very important to take note of present tense verbs to understand John's stance on the nature of sin in the Christian's life. For example, and I referenced this earlier, in 1 John chapter 3, there is a, a troubling verse that has troubled people a lot, knowing how to take this verse. And that's verse 9. It says, "...whoever has been born of God does not sin." For his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he's been born of God. Well, you read that, and that's a very troubling verse because if that's true, I know I sin a lot, and I think I've been saved. I've done what the Bible tells me to do to be saved, so I must not be born of God. I must have been duped this whole time. Is that what it's saying? Because if you sin once, then you you must not have been born of God. No, in fact, the... Uh, the present tense nature of that verb, and the again, going deeper into the, uh, the Greek grammar, the ESV bears this out for common people like you and me, and it says, this verse should be translated like this, whoever has been born of God cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. That makes sense now. That makes sense. Ah, okay, now that reconciles the fact that Christians who have been born of God according to following the God's plan of salvation in the Scriptures, how they still sin, and yet they're still born of God. They may sin from time to time, but they do not live in such a way that it can be described to them that they keep on sinning. When they sin and it's brought to their attention, they stop it, and they do not keep on sinning. In fact, they keep on walking in the light. Return to that concept from chapter 1, walking in the light versus walking in darkness, practicing righteousness versus practicing unrighteousness. There's a lot of this dichotomy of the of darkness and light in the book, and the fact that Christians should 
live a life of habitual light rather than a, a life of habitual darkness. You get the idea there. So taking note of that in chapter 1, for example, when he says to walk in the light, uh, let's go back there real quick and, and we'll read a couple of verses together. Chapter 1, verse 6, If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. There we need to understand, I think one translation says, uh, keep on walking in darkness. So if we say that we have fellowship with Him and keep on walking in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Okay, that's the idea. It's a present tense, something we're doing in the now, and we keep on doing. But if we walk in the light as He is in light, if we keep on walking in the light is the idea, as He is in light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ's Son cleanses us from all sin. Now he goes back to the idea of walking in darkness again. He's not saying that this person is a split personality, walking in darkness, and at the same time walking in the light, and he has an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other shoulder telling him to do one or the other at the same time. He's saying there's two different kinds of people. There's the person that says they're a child of God, born of God, but they don't live like it. And then there's the child uh, of God who says they're a child of God, and they live like it. Being pure as he is pure, as John says later on in the book. Being righteous as he is righteous. He says the same thing. So what he's saying is that your confession has to match your life. Your life is your confession, basically. And this this uh, being righteous as Jesus is righteous is a life of continual keeping on, walking in light, living in this way. So noticing present tense verbs... Compare different Bible translations whenever this becomes difficult. The understanding of a verse should help you in, in understanding some difficult verses. And there are several difficult verses in this epistle, not to take away from that. Okay, so we've talked about five tips. I'll just review real quick. There are several key phrases. I went through the key phrases with you already. There's a lot of concepts. Number two, there's a lot of concepts that are introduced and then returned to in the book. Look for that. There's a lot of, number three, there's a lot of scholars who preach like Gnosticism is a matter of fact. The thing that motivated John to write this epistle may have, may not have been. The fourth thing is take note of personal pronouns, first-person personal pronouns, and use context to help distinguish whenever it's referring to the apostles, John and the apostles, and when it's referring to John and his identity as a Christian and talking to other Christians. And then uh, we talked about number five, take note of present tense verbs. This will help you understand statements that John makes about sin and, and righteousness. The sixth thing is that there's a, uh, there's a major—now, this is really interesting. There's a major running theme throughout the book that is in line with the Matthew 12, 33 concept. And that is the idea—in Matthew 12 and 33 and 35, Jesus says that a, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit— and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit, and a tree is known by its fruit. That parable that Jesus used there was really not talking about trees. He was really talking about disciples, people that would follow him, and really not disciples, just judging the character of people by the way that they live. And one of the ways you can tell if somebody is really sincere is, are they consistent? Not do they never sin, are they consistent? When they do sin, does their response to that sin, is it in line with their confession that they're a Christian? So what kind of fruit do they produce even when they sin? Well, you don't get oranges from apple trees is what 
the parable is basically saying you get apples from apple trees. And so if you say that you're a Christian, you ought to be putting off Christian fruits, purity and righteousness and holiness. It's Jesus was all those things. That's one of the themes that's often repeated in the book. If you don't believe me, read it for yourself. It's going to come up in many different forms. And one example being 1 John chapter 2, verses 3-5. through five. This is one of my favorite verses in the book. It's so simple and straightforward. It says, Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. By this we know that we are an apple tree, because we put off apples just as he does. It goes on in verse 6, He who says he abides in him on himself also to walk just as he walked. And so that principle there, that's just one example in the book. Again, later on, I don't have the verse reference in front of me, but um, there, here it is right here, chapter 3 and verse 3, And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. In chapter 3 and verse... Let's see here. Seven, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. So the idea of we produce the fruit of the tree that we grow off of, which is Christ in this example, that's how we know we're of the tree. That's study tip number six. Pay attention for that. That's an important message from the book. Then last of all, I always like to look for what is this book tell me about God's character? What can I learn about God, who He is, and how He acts, and what He likes and what He doesn't like, all that kind of stuff? Well, we learn a lot of that. There's several statements about God, and I just took note of these, and I'll read them off to you very quickly. God is light. God is faithful and just. Jesus is our propitiation. In Him, Christ, there is no sin. God is pure. God is righteous. God is greater than our heart. God is love. Jesus is the Son of God. God first loved us. God hears us. Those are all short, pithy statements describing God's character, quotes from the book of 1 John. So you can learn a lot about God the Father, God the Son in this book. So those are all things to take away from studying 1 John. Again, not an introduction to the book, but hopefully you can take these things and it will really open up the book to you a lot. It'll help give some light to the purpose of the book and some of the main purpose statements within, uh, and a lot of the difficulty when you come across certain passages that are difficult. So I hope that helps. The next Bible study tips for a book of the Bible that we'll do is on 2 Corinthians. Right now I'm reading through 2 Corinthians, so stay tuned in the future for an episode on study tips on 2 Corinthians. A quick foot and mouth syndrome before you go. This one goes all the way back to 2017 at a Tennessee Labor Day meeting at the Chapel Grove Church of Christ. I've come up here for this Labor Day meeting every year. Well, not every year, but a long time. And I would usually, from the time I was about 16, I would give talks with young men on the last service is how they arranged things. So, well, I was going up to give my talk, and they had this podium. By the way, I was about 20, I don't know, 5 or something like that at this point. But anyways, I'm walking up their steps, and they had a really tall first step. And I thought I was going to hop on that first step and just kind of leap onto the podium. Not like in some acrobatic way, nothing fancy. I was just going to hop up on the stage in one kind of fell swoop. Well, what happened was that step was taller than what I had estimated in my mind, and the tip of my toe caught on that thing, and I fell smack dab on those steps. And I'm wearing a suit and everything, and I just... I popped up real quick, and I was early 20s, pretty agile, and I walk up there, 
and everybody is laughing. They, it's just completely embarrassing. My face must have been beat red how embarrassed I was. Thankfully, I collected myself. I acknowledged the fact of what I did. I didn't try to hide it. There was no hiding it. And I was able to proceed. And I did get through it. But I tell you what, that fall, I've never lived down since. Everybody remembers it that was there. Everybody remembers it till they die. That's one of the foot and mouth syndrome. This is not really a foot and mouth. This is really more of a foot syndrome. <laughs> As I tripped on the stage, uh, the, somebody called it the great fall. Um, I should have talked about Adam and Eve in the garden. But anyways... Well, that'll do it for today's episode. Come back next time for more of the 5-Minute Bible Study Podcast. I don't know what we're going to be doing next. If you have any topics that you want covered, trying to stay on theme with the subject of Bible study, whether that's how to study the Bible. I have resources on that on my website, but maybe you'd like a full episode on it or something. Then let me know, and we'll see you in a couple weeks for the next episode. (laughs) 